0: Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. I was uh, watching Ken Burns's uh, Vietnam documentary last night, which is a, a fascinating work, a lot of amazing footage, because of course they were relatively unconstrained in that time. And I realized at a certain point that I was uh, you know, participating in that in that strange and for modern people somewhat unusual act of staring at a lot of corpses, uh, and I was contemplating what it means to be looking at corpses in the context of a film about war, a film about fear, a film about uh, terrible error. Uh, And it jived with me because uh, recently there's been discussion in the news about what to do with the video footage of the Texas church shooting in uh, Sutherland Springs. You know, they have this seven or eight minutes of video of this guy methodically killing people, including kids. Uh, And they're like, well, what do we do with this? And, you know, there's the pressure to release it, to have people see what this means, to see what real violence looks like, as opposed to, uh, you know, uh, concocted violence that everybody obsessively watches on uh, Netflix and HBO. And uh, at the same time, there's this strong sense of, of you know, uh, decorum would dictate, and the, tr- the potentially traumatized victims would dictate that we hide these images, uh, which is you know weirdly resonant with the way in which we approach war images, particularly in the modern world, the post-Vietnam. American world, where we really don't like to see uh, corp- images of corpses, particularly American corpses. Uh, and there's this charge around, you know, images of death that is sort of right in our face, although we rarely look at it as such. It's always got to be under some other kind of story about news, about war, uh, about, uh, you know, the the violence of, of. Uh, Of uh, mass murderers, and you know how do we think about that? How do we integrate that? Uh, How do we pay attention to it? How do we, uh, you know, try to deal with it? Uh, And it's it's this has been very interesting because recently I've been uh, tremendously enjoying uh, a new book uh, that's been edited by our guest today, uh, Joanna Evanstein, and it's called Death: A Graveside Companion, and it's one of those beautiful uh, books that Thames and Hudson produces, filled with uh, uh delectably selected images from uh, uh the human archive uh put together with uh, great care and uh and and fine notes and uh it's a wonderful view of the images of death that have been part of human society and and Joanna argues a uh, much more central part of human society than our current in our current situation where we're much more concerned about it again particularly uh in the west in in, in America um and uh, in addition to showing all the different faces of death, so to speak, uh, there's a lot of really wonderful essays in there about everything from you know, Victorian hairwork jewelry to the history of the guillotine to the dance of death to uh, the tremendous uh, culture of death in uh, in in Mexico uh, And so it's a it's a wonderful compendium of images and I first met, uh, joanna through her uh, the morbid anatomy uh, project which is this this is in many ways a, a part of morbid anatomy started out as a blog and then developed into a lecture series and um, uh, photographic images and other archival work as well as the uh, now, uh, uh, dearly lamented Morbid Anatomy uh, Museum, uh, which I was able to uh, visit and also give a presentation at uh, before it unfortunately closed in Brooklyn. But Joanna is still in Brooklyn and clearly still doing tons of stuff um, with, um, with Morbid Anatomy, including this excellent new book. So, with no further ado, uh, Joanna, thanks for joining us on Expanding Mind.
1: Oh, well, thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure.
0: Yeah, it's great. So, uh, yeah, let's ta- start off talking about uh, morbid anatomy and how it started mm-hmm. in the in the blog. Like, uh, did you were you interested uh, in many different things and said decided to kind of focus on this for particular reasons, or it had always been uh, a very strong uh, drive in your life, and you were like, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna use the uh, the World Wide web to uh, <laughs> get something going on this. Uh, um, uh,
1: I have it's a place very- for
0: my obsession to <laughs> to. Uh, to to uh, explode
1: very very much the former you know it's funny because i just i have all my stuff in storage and i've just been going through i just got some stuff out all my old notebooks and sketchbooks and it's a great reminder of how many projects i was doing that went nowhere or you know kind of dead-ended into something else morbid anatomy to me started as a um one of my many interests was medical museums and kind of images of death and how those work together so for your listeners who don't know Oh, medical museums are these museums, the best known of which in the United States is the Mütter Museum in Philadelphia. These are museums all around the world that that have um, human remains or kind of wax or plaster simulacrums of human remains, ostensibly to teach medical students and, and at one point a general public, excuse me, about, um, about the body. But they're now visited today by people that I feel like... Um, Going back to what you were saying in your introductory remarks, in a time in which we don't have access to many images of death and the body has this new charge, they go to have this kind of experience, I would say. And so I was really interested in looking at these objects, both preserved human remains and simulacrums of them, photographing them and um, presenting them in such a way that it would encourage the audience to think about um, how they're made by humans at a particular time and place, how they if unconsciously express ideas about the ideal and aberrant body and how they, you know, and I think the book is really the culmination of this idea, how they fit into a larger narrative about images that relate to mankind's attempts to understand and make sense of the great human mystery of death.
0: And one one of the things that, that really struck me with your book, but it's also something that I've been thinking about lately. I've been, you know, thinking about, um, you know, like you know, my parents are getting older. They're not going to be around forever. I've seen other people, friends of mine, my generation. Uh, you know, kind of the, a time when parents are starting to go. And and the the closer I approach the, that that experience, it's, there's a strange dichotomy where on the one hand, uh, it raises some of the most you know profound issues about life, about loss, about meaning, about uh, you know God or the absence thereof. Uh, and at the same time, it's an incredibly physical, brute event, you know, and, and, and all of the sort of uh, uh, kind of grotesquery of, uh, of, of, a, of a dying or dead body. And that combination is such a strange aspect of, uh, about it, at least in a modern context where, it, like, you know, if someone dies, the moment you're yeah, at, that, at that moment, you have to wrestle with all of these profound emotions and melancholy and, and, again, these sort of religious questions that arise, even for secular people, when, when mm-hmm. death is in their face. And at the same time, you know, you got to deal with the insurance and you got to <laughs> fill out forms. And it's, it's utterly banal, but it's banal mm-hmm. in a particularly charged and kind of grotesque way. And I'm wondering whether that dichotomy you see is something that actually kind of runs through the story or is it a particular symptom of our modern screwed upness about death and dying?
1: <laughs> yeah, what I what I would probably say, you know, what really interested me about the many things you said is the question about religion and god. And I think that's to me, you know, when I began to look at these images and think about, okay, what has changed in the past 150 so or 50 so, 50 years or so, in that these images that were once clearly super commonplace now seem utterly bizarre, right? And I think one of, the biggest, one of the biggest changes is that we don't, that most of us, that many of us are secular today. And I don't think, and you probably know a whole lot more about this than I do, but so far as I can understand, we are the first society to really think of themselves as purely secular. And of course, that's urban white city dwellers in America. I, I realize that there's a lot of religious people and probably a lot of religious listeners, but this kind of doubt... Um, or looking for answers in the way that we do now, I don't think was commonplace until our time and place. So I think part of the charge of the body comes from this, like in in a world that has embraced, you know, a post 19th century world that is a materialist world that only believes in what can be measured. The body has all this meaning, but we can't figure out what it means. There's nothing visible. So it becomes this, this, at the same time, desanctified thing. It's just a corpse. But at the same time, it has all this power because it there's no other place to put all of those thoughts and feelings, if you know what I mean. So I think that like every other time that I can see had a set of rituals, mythology, or religion to explain um, these natural cycles that we all encounter as human beings of life and death, these rites of passage that, that created meaning around it. So I, I think people suffered loss, for sure. And you can see that when you look at letters of parents who were losing children in the 19th century you know just because three and five kids died before reaching adulthood doesn't mean that they weren't mourned greatly. Um, people suffered but I don't think this kind of questioning that's at the core of our suffering um, existed until very recently.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting uh, point about how it, it changes the way that we relate to the, to the body. Uh, that, that losing the, that, that kind of religious frame makes us sort of wonder, what do we do with this thing? What is it? Is it just this it? And yet it becomes um, altogether more charged because there's not really a larger story uh, to locate this yeah. e- 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 event in.
1: Yeah, it becomes almost literal, I feel like. The body becomes a stand-in for this concept of death, you know, that Memento Mori used to stand in for, or this this image of a dancing anthropomorphized skeleton used to stand in for. Now it's just this cold... It's a mystery, right? It's this thing that once was something and now is something else, and it's no longer your loved one, and yet it is your loved one. And especially in a, in a world that doesn't have... Um, Regimented structures, ideas, structured ideas about what happens to us after we die. um, Though I know a lot of people believe in ghosts, but even that's kind of, you know, not really an answer. Then that body becomes, in in a strange way, identical to and yet not identical to. I think it's very confusing for um, a materialist philosophy when the material that once contained life, this, you know, elusive, mysterious thing in and of itself, that life is gone, and now this thing, this, this thing is now a thing and it once was your loved one I think that's a really um, complicated thing to uh, engage with when you don't have a meaning system to at least attempt to tell you what the meaning is yeah
0: it, well, what, one of the things that's making me think of I think about is uh, you know there's a sort of strand of uh culture even underground culture or sort of marginal or subversive culture in the 20th century that that has a an interest or even a fixation or even an obsession with death. So we think about, you know, the classic image of the goth, you know, and totally, the goths, yeah. you know, all this kind of thing. And, and so, uh, and then, you know, then, and there's more intense versions. There's something, you know, the you know, the classic melancholic goth, I find I find to be a charming, <laughs> a charming image. Uh, but there are of course extremes there where, you know, people get really obsessed with, with serial killers or with, yeah. uh, yeah. uh, you know, photographs of crime scenes and there's, you know, it gets a little bit creepy and you're like, I'm not really sure what to do about that. But the whole thing in a way could be seen that whole side of, of modern culture, which you're, you know, inevitably participating in to some degree with the people who come to your shows, the people who are Absolutely. interested in your work.
1: That's our but, audience you're describing basically. Yeah. I, mean, I, I know a lot of those people and Meeting those people's really changed my views about them too, but go on. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. Well,
0: no, I mean, I, I wanted to talk about that because I know yes. that you have that perspective, but you're not necessarily coming from that perspective. But what I was just thinking the, the one little thought was that rather than seeing that as a lot of people do, like, oh, they're just obsessed with the dark or they're unhappy or they can't, you know, figure out whatever it is that in a way they're doing the hard work of trying to maintain a culture Around death and dying, that is much more like what human beings have had for the vast majority of their lives where there's some kind of, you know, yeah. strong cultural relationship with the images, all the images we see in your book, whether they're, you know, medieval uh, Christian images or whether they're, you know, the kind of uh, phantasmagoria in France in the 19th century or spiritualism that there's been all of these cultures of, of death and dying where you there's some kind of relationship and we uh, lose that in the modern situation. So in some sense, the, uh, the death-obsessed among us are kind of <laughs> carrying something forward that the rest of us are ignoring.
1: Yeah, you know, what you're saying, I absolutely agree with you. And what, 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 what I think of when, when I hear you say that is, you know, Carl Jung had this concept that has always been really influential to me, which is this idea that one of the artist's roles in society is to take that which is in the shadow of of um, the culture, that which isn't acknowledged, that's what which is rejected as bad and evil, and and bringing it to the light. And I feel like that's what, in a weird way, goths do. And I think it it's a, it's it's establishing a much needed balance between light and dark that is part of being human. And I think there's something really lost. And I think this is more in America than in Europe, from my from my understanding. There's this there's this embrace in America of we want the good without the bad we want pleasure without pain. We, you know, we have this whole new age ideology, which basically says you cannot, you know, we can find, we can tell you how you won't suffer and can have the life you want. You know, this is a very American concept. I think this idea that, um, that pleasure could exist without pain or light without dark or life without death, you know? And I think when people were closer to the land until, you know, the past, until it became more urban, you couldn't, you couldn't not know about death. You couldn't, death couldn't be exotic or other because you know you were confronted every day, especially agricultural societies, with these cycles of life and death. That was, that was the natural world. That's what religions were based on. That's what mythology was based on. These kind of truisms of being human, and death in this context, you know, as in a Christian context, was seen as like a memento mori. Like a um, death is part of the human condition. It is what makes us human. I would say, and I think grappling with the dark side. Is, is what gives us wisdom. And I think there is something, you know, my whole life I was called morbid for being interested in this sort of stuff. And at a certain point, I, I you know, I always said, okay, I guess I'm just a morbid person. But then I began to think about it and I thought, okay, if everyone who's ever lived has died and I will die and everyone I know will die. And, you know, basically as far as I can understand the human condition is basically the fact that we do know we're going to die. It's a very unique problem. I can't imagine how people couldn't think about death all the time. And I think the goths um, instinctively understand that and are drawn to it. And I think as someone who, you know, at one point in my life had goth leanings, I certainly listened to goth music, went goth dancing and things. It's, um, there's something that just feels more true and real and connected to a life that has darkness and pain rather than a life that, you know, I grew up in California, where you know the dominant image was a smiling, happy, you know, beach-going volleyball person. I never fit into this. You know, I've always liked things that are darker, that are that are melancholy, and that that create um, a strong emotion. And I think death creates a strong emotion, or contemplating death, or you know, experiencing death at a remove in these sorts of attractions that are in the book. Um, but I think there is something powerful there that is lost in a in a society and a culture which devalues the dark in exchange for the light. And so again, I would just go back to what I was saying. I think what the Goths are doing that I think is very important is restoring a balance between light and dark.
0: Yeah, and in, in a way, I mean, the, the fact that you chose the word morbid to describe your project, I think is really interesting because it's like you're almost trying to turn it, you know, the way that a negative yes. word get turns into a positive word. Because, I mean, even just the etymology of that word, did it always mean sort of unhealthily obsessed, or did it just once refer to mortality?
1: That's a really good question. Um, When I was coming up with the name for this project, I liked what I really wanted because, you know, the project... So basically, I think I forgot to finish my story. So when I did this um, exhibition about medical museums, I started Morbid Anatomy just really as a research tool, it was a blog that I started. And it was just like a place to keep all the links that I was using again and again, all my online resources and my bibliography and to start to kind of digest all of the material I was consuming in little bite-sized chunks. And it never occurred to me, it never was really for an audience. It was just for me and very quickly to my utter surprise. And this is like the time that I started, it, it was just kind of the, the flowering of blogs It turned out, it was just a fortuitous timing. The blog ended up developing a really big following. Soon people were asking me if they could borrow books that were in my bibliography, and then I opened the library, uh, and then soon after we started doing lectures, and it kind of kept growing and growing. But when I was trying to come up with a name, I really wanted it to be a medical double entendre. So in the medical community, the word morbid anatomy means the study of pathology, of bodies gone wrong, essentially. So in that context, morbid means... um, not regular anatomy, but uh, mon- like I guess monstrous anatomy or distorted anatomy or sick anatomy. Um, where the actual word morbid comes from, I think that's a really good question. I, I don't know, I'd be very curious to know. But it was also, yes, yeah, very much my attempt to kind of reclaim the notion of morbid and say, you know, the same way people have reclaimed all sorts of words. Um, I, really, I really have given it a lot of thought and I don't think it's morbid to think about death. I think it's actually morbid to pretend death doesn't exist, which is what I would argue our culture does.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm very much with you here. I mean, I I think I've, you know, though not, um, not quite in a in a gothic temperament, <laughs> uh, I've always, but I've always had a you know interest in 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 horror, uh, and more in a kind of religious sense. I think I've been aware of death, and that that one of the things that I have that I most appreciate about religion as someone who's very very interested and very influenced by religion, but in other ways is not a I'm not really a religious person. It's just sort of where my aesthetic resonates, where a lot of my ideas come from. But what I've found most valuable about being in relationship to religion is that you can't you gotta you gotta look at death. I mean, you got there's and it's not just because uh, you know, like in Christianity, they're promising you get to live forever, so you don't have to worry about death. That's a that's kind of a superficial reading of what is a superficial kind of christianity uh that you go you go deeper and you realize that this question this remembrance of death that this momentum mori which is such a part of christian culture and there's so many wonderful wonderful images uh in this book that we could you know go into all the details of these great uh, artists and how the images change over time but one of it is just to you know remember the that the life. This life is fleeting. That uh, too much investment in in your ego or your accomplishments is uh, is a vanity that that looks rather flimsy from the perspective of the end, and that everybody's in the boat together, and that these are actually really powerful. Uh, thoughts that don't require religion, but somehow being around it, and and you know, it's a very similar thing in Buddhism, where they're even more, you know, they're not they're not promising you that you're going to get a a nice cushy afterlife. In fact, you're trying to kind of avoid the afterlife. But the, regardless of uh, what happens after you die, um, the transience is is again in in your face, and it seems really clear in my experience that the the deepest joys of life and appreciation of life lie through that that portal through the fear and the um you know the kind of having to deal with your own neg- negative reactions the way your body doesn't like it you know your body is like oh it stinks in here ah, it's a <laughs> dead thing it's a dead rat ah you know and it's like your body's like has a has a don't get around dead things uh, p- programming that's pretty deep, you know, much deeper than just modernity's quavering and uh, and all of those things are really, I think, in the end, quite uh, quite liberating.
1: Yeah, and I think you've just hit on one of the essential paradoxes. You know, I think, um, and I try to say this in the final paragraph of the introduction. Like, basically, our forefathers seem to know <laughs> basically all of them from every time and place that paradoxically, paradoxically contemplating life—excusing—contemplating uh, con- death leads to a richer life. And I think that is a truism. And I think when we avoid the dark and we avoid, avoid confronting our own darkness, our own fears, our own mortality, then we do have a shallow and unhappy life, I think. And so, you know, one thing that I, I have always said to people who ask, well, why did I end up doing all this work and not, you know, have a nine to five at a publishing house or something, which was another uh, route that was definitely open to me in my early career. It's because I contemplate death and I am also a secular person. I'm not religious, but like you, I'm, I'm very, very interested in, um, in, in religion and what it has done for people and, and how we're different from those people. But every time I would get on a plane, uh, which I was really afraid of, but I flew all the time, I would think to myself, okay, if I die on this flight, what would I do differently? And because I've been doing that regularly, it's a practice. It's kind of a memento mori practice. It's this, It's this very conscious contemplation of death and knowing that it could happen at any time that has kept me doing things that I want to do with my time on earth. Because I actually, and this, um, also my background is I'm Jewish and my grandparents on my father's side were Holocaust survivors. So I think to kids who grew up with grandparents in the Holocaust, this idea of death is really different. Um, You know, not only the fact that it was this, You know, so many people died and my grandmother saw crazy things and they got out and all of that. But also, you know, just on a very basic level, I think this 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 feeling we have that death is never going to come is essentially the same feeling as thinking the sun is going to rise on the world just like it was the day before, you know, forever and ever and ever. And when I was a very little kid, I remember my grandmother telling me that after Hitler's troops marched into Austria, her best friend wouldn't acknowledge her on the street. And that profoundly impacted me more than death. I just kept thinking about that. Like, okay, so the world can change in an instant. Everything you think is your world can can go. My grandmother never wanted to move to the United States. She didn't know English. You know, she had this whole different life than the one she had chosen for herself. And I think perhaps that creates a morbid sensibility or, or at least a sensibility that that is more aware and... Um, aware of the delicacy and fragility of what we're experiencing right now, and certainly there's loss that goes along with you know when it when things end. But I think because of that background and because I've been thinking about those things, I'm more I'm more prepared for it. I, I don't expect things to last forever. I guess.
0: You know, this reminded me of an interesting experience um, that I had that I'm, I'm curious what resonates with some of your. Your experience where there was a, a, I lived in Houston for a little while and there's a wonderful uh, funeral museum.
1: Yeah. I've always have wanted to go there. No, yeah, I it's, always wanted to. Is it good?
0: Yeah. It's, it's dynamite. So it starts out and there's like tons of caskets and they have like, they have caskets for three people. They have these weird, you know, kind of aberrant caskets and stuff. And that's a lot of it. And then a lot of, a lot of old school hearses. And then you get back and there's some a wonderful 19th century display where they they show the early embalming equipment and talk about the history of the Civil War, and then they have some lovely, you know, but not not too many examples of the Victorian uh, hairwork stuff that's really beautiful and stuff about. And then there's some uh, rotating shows. There was one of, uh, when I was there about the the Pope's funeral with the the rituals around the, the funerals of, of popes, hmm. and then they ha- they had a wonderful collection of those uh, crazy Ganis. Uh, oh yes, uh, I love those uh, 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 caskets. You know that look like oranges and airplanes or whatever. And they had like 50, 60 of them. I mean, it was really amazing. But the experience that I had with, this was what what I wanted to bring. It was a subtle and strange experience. So I showed up. I was fascinated, you know, interested. I had that excitement one has when your curiosity is being satisfied and, you know, there's another dimension opening up and you're discovering things. Like, I had never seen hair work in the flesh, like I'd just seen it in, in photographs. And I was like, yeah. Oh my God, look at this. And the people, you know, and you're intimate with it and the, the flows of history and the connection with all humanity and this and that. And, da, da, da. and so I was going through in that kind of, you know, curious, happy museum mode. And then at a certain point it was like, and I don't want to say the reality of it because that doesn't quite capture it, but that the mist, the, the, the disturbing mystery of it, Mm. kind of seep seeped in Mm. and I was suddenly like whoa like all this stuff that had just been like really fascinating was now like almost like a like a kind of a tint like a tinsely veil around some Mm. very grim reality that I was like trying to both approach and avoid at the same time through my curiosity
1: yeah totally
0: it was a very strange feeling. And I just wonder whether, I mean, since you're, you're, you know, I mean, even just sitting down and going through your whole book, I'm like, you know, like, oh shit, another page full of skeletons behind in my flesh. Like what, like there, you must have some interesting days where you're like, man, <laughs> I got to do this again? So yeah. like, what is it like for you to <laughs> sort of live with the culture of, of death so, much in your professional life, in your creative life, in your intellectual life. Have you kind of found these sort of deeper layers to that encounter, both both positive and, and challenging?
1: Yeah, I what you describe yeah. Um, so basically, in the book, as you as you can see, uh, it's over a thousand images, and I had to write captions for each of those images. So that means I had to re- I had to get to know each image in that book at one point, point. and it was a very long month. <laughs> it was like I got up in the morning and I started, and I went to bed at ten at night, and I was not nearly finished. And I'd get up, so I'd say I'm kind of. There are times when I would say in my home I don't surround myself with images of death anymore, and I would also say that. I know exactly the feeling you're talking about when you there's this kind of, um, I think curiosity and aesthetics are both these mechanisms that allow us to to approach something um, and kind of get to know it a little bit. And there is something that breaks through sometimes. And for me, I had that experience only a few years ago. I went to a medical museum and you know I photographed medical museums all over the world. Again, these are like spaces filled with skeletons and babies and jars and all sorts of other things. And I got backstage access at this museum and I was so excited, like, you know, I get to just take all the pictures I want. And I sat there and I was by myself and I was like, oh, I just feel really sad. <laughs> like, I don't want to do that. Like, I just felt horrible. I felt a horrible sense of loss. And I don't know if that's getting older. I don't know if it's just that I've been, in you know, doing so much with this material for so long that it, 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 it brought me to another point. But what I think is interesting, the way you're talking too about, you know, the way that, Their, you know, curiosity, that kind of um, fulfilling of curiosity gives you this certain excitement. um, Made me think about all the different layers to death. And I think what, what really interested me when I did this book. So, you know, I've been dealing with this material now for 10 years. And in many ways, the book felt like a culmination of what I've been doing. And also kind of thought in a sense, because in some ways, with the closing of the museum and the publishing of my other book, The Anatomical Venus, I kind of felt like I'd said everything I need to say about this This concept of death, you know. But then what I realized through sitting down to work on the introduction for the book, so I thought, okay, I only have three thousand words and I really want to talk about why this matters and why this is important, why it's not just morbid to look at images of dead things. And as I wrote that and got to know my feelings and thoughts and delved in deeper, I kind of had the realization that death is one of those things like like life or the body or God or I don't even know what that can go on forever. And that there's so many layers that it was almost hubris to think that I was done with it. You know, I think I'm done with a certain purely surface material interest in it. I shouldn't say it was ever purely surface, but I'd say what what I'm really interested in now, what what I what this project ultimately brought me to and working on the anatomical Venus as well, the kind of the rabbit hole I ended up going down with that was where it intersects with belief and religion and what it can tell us about who we are today and who we were in the past and how we can learn from this how we how we can learn from how we've changed
0: yeah i think that those are really really key questions and and one of the the ways into that uh in your, in one of the things i really got from the book and looking at the images is the personality of death as figured in the skeletal figure whether or not he's got a you know scythe or not there's, uh, and the range of those, those feelings and those characteristics, because it's simultaneous. I mean, just the idea that death has a personality or the idea that the skeleton can be an animated creature that has its own expressions and behaviors the way that our bodies do, you know, is already, we're in the realm of the supernatural or in the realm, of, you know, of religion. And yet the characteristics that death has are definitely different than your usual gods and angels and even demons you know even the relationship like satan is a much more i'm not saying I mean, it's a complex character for sure but there's a weird way in which the figure of death both is and is not human that you know e- angels and devils there you can see them on the continuity with with being a kind of human but death has these characteristics, you know, it's smoking, playing dice, <laughs> grabbing someone's breast, you know, whatever. And yet there's a really non-human character to the skeleton and to whatever. That there's So there's this strange kind of, there's something about the personality that comes through or the range of personalities that come through in associ- association with death that really opens up a very curious place that is religion, but not quite religion. It's, it's, it's elusive uh, for me and I like that. I like that I couldn't put my finger on what was going on with this urge to represent death as having a personality, having yeah. a
1: character. Well, you know, one one thought I have about that, I thought a lot about that too. And I, I thought, you know, I did a lot of reading when I was preparing the text for the book about um, kind of the history of death and the history of the bubonic plague in particular. And, you know, this idea of the animated skeleton being or the animated corpse, one or the other, being kind of the primary way of representing death kind of pops up in the aftermath of the Black Death. And scholars argue about whether that's, you know, responding to that or not. But when I look at the image, I think, yes, like I can imagine that during the time of the Black Death, you know, death seemed like a whimsical character, like a capricious god, you know, like. Especially because between the plague and war, it was a lot of young people being killed, too. And, you know, up to a third of European civilization was wiped out. So this idea that death could come at any moment and take whoever, young or old, king or prince, pauper, you know, which is what the dance of death is all about, seems so, um, such a response to what was going on, how death was, how death must have felt at that time that you weren't safe no matter what. You might be a baby, you might be rich. It doesn't matter. Death could come. And what's so interesting to me about this, Eric, I don't know, have you heard of the, the phenomenon of Santa Muerta? Do you know about this? You're in California, so you've probably seen it.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. I was going to, that's that's like on my list of questions. So okay,
1: can... so to me, I see Santa Muerta as a modern manifestation of exactly the same thing. And I think it's so interesting that she arose. So for your listeners who don't know, Santa Muerta is a saint, uh, or she's a... Uh, I, I think she's usually worshiped as a saint as part of the Catholic Panoply in Mexico and in areas where there are a lot of Mexican people uh, transplants. And she is um, personified as as a basically a female grim reaper. She holds a scythe. She has a dress or a cape or whatever. And she is seen as basically, from what I understand, almost like a black Madonna figure is how I see her, kind of like a more accepting Virgin Mary, one who, will accept you and protect you and lead you to a good death, no matter what you've done in life. She understands the contingencies of life on earth. She understands if you need to rob banks. She understands if you maybe have to bend the rules sometimes. She also understands revenge. Um, But there's something so fascinating that she, this kind of personification of an anthropomorphized figure of death, that again is capricious, pops up at a time when in Mexico, Death is capricious. Death is unpredictable. You know, so many people are killed um, not because they're doing anything wrong, but because they're in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I'm to me, that kind of um, seems to suggest uh, that the original anthropomorph—excuse anthropomorphized figure of death that popped up around the bubonic plague was responding to the same thing. So to me, I see that figure as a, a way to personify a death that ha- seems to almost have a personality because she's so capricious or he's so capricious.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, a, and that's an interesting th- one. That's one of the, again, tuning into what that personality is because there have been other saints that are, that have images of skeletons associated with them. But this is the first time that it's death herself.
1: Yeah, like it's yeah. not,
0: it's not, you know, uh Saint, uh, whatever, Sebastian, the death, you know, it's like, right, it's like right. death.
1: Yeah. And,
0: yeah. Yeah, death as a woman and one of the things is we went to the um the the place where her her cult started in a you know in, in one of the bar, uh, barrios in Mexico City to see it uh, during the day and it's a pretty rough place you know it's open sewage on the street and you know definitely like wouldn't want to be there after after dark but you know it's cool people were friendly and one of the things that was really peculiar about the display is that she was in this beautiful white a uh, uh, gown, and it had and there were like these sort of angelic children around her, and it had very much a sense of a of a kind of uh, Catholic Virgin Mary maternal, yes. sweet vibe. But then, just like five feet away, there was a poster on the wall that had mm-hmm. another figure of her with all of these basically sort of satanic heavy metal symbols around her.
1: Totally. you know like
0: really heavy occult vibe. And I'm like, well, and I think another side of the figure. I think it's totally related to, you know, the the reality of death in Mexico and the absurdity of death in Mexico. And I mean, even before all, all the, the killings associated with drug crime, you know, Mexico already has this extraordinary death culture that, that is reflected in your book as well. So it's already, you know, it's clearly in, you know, been in the cards yeah. for a while. But it also points to. I, what I believe is one of the things that's happening to religion now, or at least, um, current, you know, like the, the, the religious questions that are really resonating with where we are at in history is that whatever the God is, it includes, radically includes good and evil. Like, it's not the old, like, oh, we can take the, the sheep and put the goats outside. It's like, no, you can't do that anymore. That... He, the meaning of human life the meaning of love the meaning of the future of chill, all that is like it's bound up with like the, the fact the the unavoidable reality of of darkness and power and you know and i don't like the word evil in this context but things that one would associate with that yeah. and so she can be, that's part of the reason that that you can be yeah. a full-on drug lord and worship Santa Muerta and you can be a kindly Catholic grandmother and worship mm-hmm. Santa Muerta is that she's bigger than those categories. And that's that's really hard to wrap your imagination around. That no, I agree. And,
1: and this is what I love about Catholicism. I know Catholicism has not really accepted Santa Muerta, but they but somehow the religion of of Catholicism can contain this figure nonetheless. I know that it's not officially it's not condoned by the Pope, but these Catholics, you know, most of them are Catholics, see her as just another saint in the panoply, but a very powerful one. And I think there's something so wonderful about that, that this idea that um, I think part of the reason Christianity or Catholicism has been around for so long is that it, it's adaptable in this way. It has absorbed so many pagan influences and so many other things, and then it just kind of, you know, it creates this frame around which, or within which, practitioners can create the saints that they need to get them through their particular lives. You know, and that's what I think is so fascinating about Santa Muerta. And the other thing I think of is, you know, I've gone to a lot of the shrines myself too, and I photographed and I've interviewed practitioners. And what somebody told me in Puebla that I thought was so interesting is that um, they said, God is above, devil's below, Santa Muerta is here on earth. And there's something to me about this whole, you know, I'm a Jew again, so I'm an outsider, so I find Christianity so fascinating. this This concept of the incarnated God, this concept of um, the importance of corpo reality in the actual physical body in Christianity. And I think that's another thing I was always trying to say with my work with morbid anatomy is there's this real functional and formal similarity between how Catholics deal with the body and how anatomical science that developed in a Catholic culture, you know in America or in Europe, rather also deals with the body, about preserving it. Uh, you know, you think of relics in the Catholic context, you think of medical museums. Um, there, there's this real culture of the the extreme importance of the body that I don't see in Eastern culture in the same way, which developed different different kind of systems until our ideas of anatomy went over there in the 18th century. So I'm really interested in this idea of Santa Muerta as being the one that, she again, she understands the contingencies of life on Earth. And I think this is what, the black Madonna does for me too. It's like, she's a figure who is related to the above, but she's also related to the below in the, in the way that she, well, she's kind of above good and evil. She just accepts life as it is. And I think Santa Muerta is the same way. She just, she, there, there is life on earth and there are ideals about what life should be. And I think God and Virgin Mary and Satan are the ideals, you know, it's those, those kind of ideas brought to their final point. But Santa Muerta, she's like, eh, I smoke cigarettes, I drink tequila, I understand that life on earth is not easy and I'm going to help you. I understand and I can be here for you. And I think there's just something really beautiful about that. And the other thing that really struck me is I went on a tour of a shrine in Los Angeles and what one of the practitioners told me there, which I hadn't thought about, is they said, Santa Muerta is not death. Santa Muerta is a psychopomp. God created death, not Santa Muerta. Santa Muerta is your guide and you should appreciate that. She's going to come and she's going to help you to the, the next world. And so she's someone that we love. And I thought that was really interesting too.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's great. I hadn't I hadn't heard that that angle because it's because it's such a, a, a multidimensional figure. I mean, even the, the the different colors associated with her. So you get different statues that are different colors, and there's even a rainbow one. So you can get all the different colors. And <laughs> yeah. there's this sense that there's this again, it's like you're saying that that the death is is an endless Topic. It's an endless mystery, and that's reflected, I think, in in hers that you you yeah. don't really know. You can't put it anywhere. It's yeah. sort of like, it's not like Kali. It's not like uh this. It's not. It doesn't really even fit exactly into religion as we as we understand it. And it does seem to be speaking very much to to where we're at. But I want I wanted to pick up on that corporeality uh, yep. issue, which is definitely uh, one of the, you know, signatures of, of Catholicism also, even as opposed to, to Protestantism, that yes. the, 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 not just the, uh, you know, attention to Christ's wounded body or the, or the, the, the corpse, uh, but also just the notion of incarnation, the emphasis on God is this fleshy, mucky, shitty body at some point. And that, is a really powerful idea, even if it can get expressed in all sorts of weird ways, but it's a very powerful idea. And it, it to me, it, it raises, again, this question we started out talking about, about modern attitudes towards death, where on the one hand, if you're like, look, if we're if we're if now we're secular and we believe that death is the end, all that we have is the life of the body, then in a way, we would be more carnal ourselves. We would be more like aware that this is where it's at, that the meaning of life is this physical body that is gonna die. And yet we're so abstracted from the physical reality of death, from the smells of death, from the look of it, from touching someone who's who's dead or whatever. Like we so abstract it, except for our, of course our our obsession with violence in film and video games, which itself is so abstract. Yeah, it's not, that's
1: super abstract too. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. not it's corporeal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's no smells. It's not gross.
0: I mean, yeah, yeah. So are we? Are we? Is this part of like what a, a, a lively culture of death is would be about? Is somehow bringing back that corporeality, like not just being satisfied with the book of wonderful <coughs> images, but somehow, I don't know. Like there's a there's another way of going. Or another dimension to it that that seems harder to pull off.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I don't know. Uh, I think what you're I think there's something there is a really profound something there, and I'm trying to to tease it out. There is something about this paradox about the body being so meaningful and yet being meaningless. And I think what you're saying too, which I think is so interesting, is that in a purely secular materialist world in which our body is our only life and we don't expect an afterlife that we should think of experiences of the body as being, um, this, the raison d'etre of being human of our, our life experience, but we don't. Um, I think it's tricky. I think, I don't know that spending more time with the actual dead body, I think for some people that, that is something that, that is helpful and maybe, that would be helpful to reintroduce to our death rituals. Like I'm sure that, you know, that until like the 19th century, it was basically considered a good death to die at home, surrounded by your loved ones. And then your body would be laid out in the parlor and your, your family would clean your body and prepare it. So there was this real intimacy with the dead body and maybe that helped people to mourn and to separate and to, to experience loss. Did it help them to conceptualize death more? Maybe, maybe. I mean, you know, what I always say to people, is this whole idea that we have today of denying death. You know, arguably, people argue this, scholars argue this. I argue that we do deny death. Um, but that the fact that we could even sit here and talk about are we denying death or not didn't even exist until 100, you know, until uh, 150 years ago, it would have been impossible at any other time or place. Because death is a part of everyday life. You know, we butchered our own animals, people died in the home, and we laid out their bodies, you um, You know, our war dead, which now tends to happen overseas, would happen closer to home. Three in five kids died before reaching adulthood. People had horses, so there was this constant shit and death everywhere, right? So this idea that death is something that happens quietly offstage um, and is taken care of by some professional is super, super new. And I do think that it's that shift, and I never thought about it the way you're talking about it, it's just kind of a shift from the corporeal to the abstract, but I think you're right. That shift is part of what ushers in this detachment from death that ironically also robs us of a rich life, you know? so yeah, maybe if there was the dead started to die at home again, um, maybe if we were dealing with death but to our own animals, um, I don't know. maybe maybe that would go some way toward towards solving this problem.
0: Well, I'm curious how, how you think about uh, our entertainment in- industry in relation to it, to it because at the end of your book, And indeed, your your essay for the book, other than your introduction, has to do with with death as an amusement um, as part of, uh, you know, that that if you looked at the amusement park rides at Coney (laughs) Island, you find all of this, you know, death imagery. And this is something I've been interested in since I probably when I was a little kid and I went to um, uh, the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean at Uh, Disneyland. I was completely obsessed.
1: Uh, me too, you know, I was me too.
0: totally obsessed with it. I had the books and I like knew the story and the woman in red and I was totally into it. And it took me a little while. And then as I was getting older and I getting into high school and kind of reflecting on stuff and I was, you know, becoming interested in psychedelics and, you know, Tibetan book of the dead and blah, blah, blah. And I started to go like, you know, there's some part of us that's interested, not just in stories around death or skeletons, but like this sort of, what I think of as a kind of bardo, you know, like where there's some sort of afterlife or right link to the event of death. And there's this kind of, there's, mm. a, there's a way that it stirs up the imagination. Mm. And so that even in a very low entertainment domain, like a, like a early amusement park, where it's just make everybody happy, it's common denominator, it's hot dogs and sodas, it's kids. But even in that environment, there's this sort of unconscious need to repeat or restage or re-theatricalize this relationship between death as a passage into the imagination and hell and heaven and all those kind of things. And it seems like we do that and now we do it with film and 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 video game. Um, has that changed? Like as, as modern attitudes towards actual death and dying have changed so drastically, it seems in some ways that our media still is the place where we tell our stories and encounter yeah. uh, that, that you know, inevitable's tale.
1: Yeah, I think you're totally right. And And what I was trying to say through including all those images is, you know, in my opinion, at a certain point, like you can see through the change of the images over time, death is very much a part of high culture and then gets pushed to low culture. And I think what's happening at that point is um, it ceases to be a subject, of polite conversation, but then kind of has new manifestations in, in the unpoliced realms of popular culture. And I think, you know, it is the, I mean, it is the ultimate story. I think, you know, death is still a mystery to us. It is probably so far as I can understand the greatest human mystery. Nobody knows Definitively, what happens after we die? We can't defeat death, and it is um, it is this narrative that I think we have to keep. I think we have to keep working out death as a culture. I think it's essential, and I think when we're not doing it in a high culture way and in, in like a a discourse that's above board. Another way. So, you know, I always think of like Laura Palmer's corpse as kind of the perfect symbol of, of all of this. I think she's and, and the body and what it means and doesn't mean and the beauty and the grotesquery and all of these things. But I think um, what I hadn't thought about and I think your point is a really good one. It's not just death, but what happens after and all those attractions or in a lot of those attractions. And when you think of Coney Island, like, you know, there was an attraction where you could be buried alive. So it was called Night and Morning. It premiered in 1907, and you'd be in a coffin, a room shaped like a coffin, glass top. You'd see mourners throw dirt on top of your grave. You'd be lowered into the ground. And then it wasn't just that, though. It wasn't just that you were lowered into the ground. As you point out, you then go through hell, where you see um, monopolists frying in pans, and you go through purgatory, and then you emerge in heaven. So there is this constant recycling of of these narratives or these retellings that I guess are hope-giving in some way, at least in the concept especially in a secular age that doesn't necessarily subscribe to those beliefs anymore, that there is, that, that all does not end, that it's not just the body, that we're not just purely material things.
0: Yeah, it does seem to be uh, uh, staying with us. And then uh, can you, are you, we just got a couple of minutes here. Okay. I'm just curious whether you see thing, other things happening in culture today that are, are really novel or, or new ways that people are trying to kind of, square this impossible mystery in terms of, you know, the way that like media is using, you know, to remember the dead or, or uh, new form, you know, virtual reality or whatever, like ways that you, you think that, that some of this death culture that you've been tracking through the past is, it might have an interesting place to flourish today.
1: I think that's a really interesting question. I'm terrible with pop culture. Like you probably know a whole lot more about what's happening now than I do. Um, but I can say that there's this whole kind of called the death positive movement and I'm kind of a part of it, but what I, what I do is so different because I'm interested in history imagery. These are mostly women and they're mostly younger and they're really, really interested in reclaiming death in in many ways in, in the here and now. So basically, um, trying to revolutionize burial practices and funeral home possibilities and all of these things that I think is really good work and really important, but not my thing, you know? So I think, I think there's changes afoot. And I think, you know, Morbid Anatomy has been around for 10 years. We're a part of that, but we were also just responding, or I was personally uh, part of the zeitgeist, you know, responding to the same cultural things that are happening as all these other people. And I think, I do feel like there's a pendulum shifting, how that's playing itself out in popular culture. I'd be curious to hear what you think, because as I said, it's just not my forte
0: yeah, I, I think I'm thinking mostly of how people are using media to memorialize, you know, uh-huh. to capture stories, and that you know, we're clearly going to be moving towards a place where there will be sort of simulacra of individuals clustered with recordings and perhaps even brought into sort of an uh, you know, an altar like form that will mm. allow memories to kind of persist in the way that. You know, even now there's all these weird ghosts on Facebook, you know, dead people's pages and all that. you know, it's like we', we we're we're virtualizing the personality so that even when the body dies, there's this weird kind of afterlife. And I think people are going to be playing with that in a lot of interesting ways, but that's still the abstract side of the story,
1: you know yeah, it's still and also with the, the other. I think is when you go to a museum and you see these stuff, like I was just in, in London and I went to the British Museum and I was looking at this mausoleum from the Roman times. I was thinking, you know what? That lasted. <laughs> I can still look at that in a museum. What's going to happen to digital technology? You know, I don't see it as monumental in the same way. I don't, I think it's all going to be lost.
0: Yeah, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of good reason to think that, for sure. I mean, we live under the strange uh, excess of information that is uh, evanescent. Uh, one, another reminder that all things pass. Yeah. But, but we're going to have uh, to end that there. Once again, be talking to uh, Joanna Ebenstein, uh, uh, editor of Death, A Graveside Companion, and a number of other books. And good luck with whatever your project going. I hope that Morbid Anatomy keeps uh, evolving and changing.
1: Thank you, and thanks so much for having me. I had a great time.
0: Wonderful. All right, folks, until uh, next week, keep your minds open.